Well, you have to tell the bees when somebody dies. Otherwise, they just clear off. I see you've got a right constable there. Just like poor Annabella. Welcome to Midsummer Maniacs, the podcast for people who are maniacs for Midsummer Murders. I'm Sarah. And I'm Mark. And we're maniacs for Midsummer Murders. Well, British murder in general. It's not that we don't like British people, but we like to watch them die on TV. Fictional murders. Right. Fictional murders. Not actual murders. <laughs> That's a different show. It's a completely different show. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of people who do that podcast, but we're not one of them. And we like those, too. Exactly. And they're great people who do great work. But on TV, we like to watch fictional British people get murdered in interesting ways. And Midsummer is our favorite. Absolutely. Yep. And has been for a long time. So our goal with this podcast is to one episode at a time elucidate the craziness, the awesomeness that is Midsummer Murders. And we will go through each episode in order all the way from the very beginning to the very present. And what's it been on TV, like 30 million years? Uh, it was first on television on the 23rd of March, 1997. 1997. Where were you in 1997? In 1997, I was still living in Canada uh, and working for a company in Canada as a trainer. I was in college. He's a little older than me. I'm much older than her. But it's okay. Okay. But we simultaneously somehow found Midsummer here in the U.S. I think I, I first found Midsummer on our local PBS station. And I remember the first time I see it, saw it was on uh, A&E in the afternoons on Sundays. It was like the perfect Sunday afternoon television show. Yep. It's like all pretty cottages and flowers. And then somebody gets their head almost cut off, you know, like you do. Yes. So, <laughs> as mentioned, uh, it was originally uh, the first episode, which is The Killings at Badger's Drift. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, was originally broadcast the 23rd of March, 1997, and filmed in September and October of 96. Now, we should probably say, before we get too deep, this is full of spoilers. If you haven't seen episode one of season one of Midsummer Murders. First of all, if you haven't seen The Killings at Badger's Drift, you, you're missing out on something really good anyway. And you should go watch it right now. You should go watch it right now. Stop. And then Stop, come back. And then go watch it. Yes. And then come back. And then come back. Because we are going to spoil the episode for you if you haven't the seen it. The killer is. Yeah. Uh, that's not going to be a mystery for very long. Um, and one of the things that makes us really excited to do this podcast is that for a long time here in Indiana, where we live, we have felt like we are the only two people in the universe who understand all the little in-jokes that, that we have, having watched these episodes many, many times. So if you are like us and you secretly love Midsummer Murders, we are your people. And I, I got to tell you, I've told a couple of people about this and they're all like, oh, I love that show. <laughs> See, and hopefully they're listening. Everybody I mention it to looks at me like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> it's a long-running ITV series in England that's translated into a billion different languages, including Swedish, 
where apparently Midsummer is huge all over the world. Hello, Swedes. Hello, Swedes. <laughs> so, without much further ado, let's, let's get talk into about Badger's Drift. Badger's Drift, which is our shorthand for it. We don't really go into the whole thing, though Badger's Drift does appear several times later in the series. It does. It is a reoccurring village. Midsummer Murders is a cozy whodunit murder show in which a uh, detective superintendent. Is that what he is? No, he's a DCI. DCI. He's a, what, what is that? DCI. Chief Inspector. Detective Chief Inspector. Yes. So he's, <laughs> and his name is Tom Barnaby. Okay. And, the, these people have watched it. They know okay, that. Okay. Right? And he Everybody has, loves Barnaby. He this ha- is Tom. Yes, Tom. And he has a, a DS, a detective sergeant named Troy. Yeah, this is right. Troy, the original. And he's married, and he has a wife, and a daughter, and there's a uh, pathologist, and that's kind of the reoccurring characters right? in the first season. Now, this was actually a pilot. It wasn't an actual first episode of a series. And it's a, so it's, this is a pilot, right? Yes. So on the back of Badger's Drift, 20 seasons of this show was, were made. Like, this is the original that started everything else. And boy, does it set the tone. Absolutely. This may be <laughs> the penultimate episode of... No, well, penultimate means next to last. Okay. This is the quintessential. Okay. Quintessential. Yes. I'm sorry. It is the quintessential. Quintessential. Midsummer. Midsummer episode. What, before we get into the exact episode, I want to ask you what you love about Midsummer. The whole thing. In general, like all of it? The whole thing. And we've seen everything multiple times. Yeah, we've seen it. Um, I think what's always made me love Midsummer is how Barnaby, whether it's Tom or later John, is kind of like um, in contrast to the craziness that is happening around him. Like he, d- he does not become sort of broken or nutsy when... All around him, these cricket players, you know, cookery class people, watercolor painters, whatever, are doing all kinds of horrible things to each other. He kind of rolls his eyes and goes on. He's like a little island of sanity. And he's not drunk. No. He's not cheating on his wife. No. He doesn't usually have fights with superiors. No. He doesn't have any superiors as far as we know. We see like one time we see a superior officer. It's nothing like that at all. So what I love is that the show takes all these life-affirming, positive values. It's funny. And at that same time, it has one of the highest body counts ever. Yeah. Well, and it's sort of a parody of the British cozy, which has been a tradition for a long time. It goes all the way back to Marple and Ellery Queen and all kinds of folks, you know, way, way, way back. You know, Agatha Christie laying out what that cozy British murder looks like, where... It's not a serial killer. It's not some guy in a hockey mask. It's like a normal person who, if you saw them on the village green, you would never think had just act somebody, you know, in their cottage. Plus the deaths are fantastic. But we will get to that. Yeah, yeah. Badger's Drift is such a good episode to start with because it really sets the tone. I actually, I feel sorry for anybody who watches Midsummer and didn't start with Badger's Drift. You have to see it. 
if you see it first, it's a different experience of the whole series because it it is like a primer to everything else that's going to happen in all the episodes. And I totally saw them out of order yeah. the first time I saw them. So I'm not even sure when I saw this episode. But I remember thinking, that was a really good episode. You've got a right constable there, yes, don't you? Yes, indeed. So, <laughs> speaking of, a little disclaimer off the top. Uh, one of the things I want to say is that if you're listening to this podcast and you let your kids watch Midsummer Murders, they can listen to this podcast. Yeah. We're not going to go into any territory that isn't in the show. If you don't let your kids watch Midsummer Murders, then they're probably not going to watch listen to the podcast anyway. They're probably going to be watching some video of somebody playing video games. <laughs> but if they are interested in the podcast, if they're grown the up show, enough to watch the show, they're grown up enough to listen to the podcast. We're not going to get blue or anything like absolutely. that. Absolutely. Let's start off with this episode. Badger's Drift is the best kept village for how many years? The first thing we see with the name of the village is that sign that has all the years that it's been the best kept village in Britain. So now I am totally interested in all the minutia of this show because we've watched it all. The sign that says Midsummer's best kept village, the years are 90, 91, 93, 94, 95, and 96. They're not going to win it for 97. What happened in 1992? That's what I want to oh, know. You wanna know I want to know what happened in 1992 that they didn't win, and they're certainly not going to win it for 1997. Well, we kind of know what happened five years ago, don't we? Kind of, exactly. Well, maybe, maybe. Maybe that's why they didn't win Best Kept Village. And what, like, best, is it like best? Best kept secret, best kept village. It's neat and tidy. Uh, it's well, except for all the blood, apparently. But that's but, later. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We're introduced to our our first character, Emily Simpson, played by Renee Asherson, and she is awesome right yeah. away. Yeah. This is an old lady on a trike. I'm like, I'm in. She's right got a now. basket. She's on a tricycle. It's fantastic. The doctor says hello to her, everything's going right, which he later lies about. Yeah. And then we see... And she's also the first victim. Yes. So the first person we see is going to be the first person to die. And, and all that, we don't get anything before the show except for a Midsummer Murders plate with the words on it, and that's it. We're, we don't even have credits yet. No, and let me say, so we do, we get the show title with the black screen with the white letters that then become drenched in like watercolor blood, right? Yes. But then when they do the credits, they show those little quaint village watercolor well, we'll, we'll pictures get, that we'll, don't match we'll that get, bloody title we'll sequence. We'll get to the credits. We got the whole cold open to do All first. All right, but we don't have to go through every second of the show. No, yeah. no, no, okay. no, no, no. So she runs across the char lady. She meets up with Lucy, who is her friend. Lucy, Lucy Bellringer. 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 The bells. The bells. The ringing of the bells is a whole thing. Bellringers will die later. And uh, they have like this nice little interaction where they're teasing each other about finding this flower. It's not a flower. It's an orchid. <laughs> <laughs> she sees this old lady uh, who is like gaudily dressed with all these baubles on. We're not sure who this is. We find out 
she takes her bike, she goes into the forest, and she finds the orchid, not a flower. The spurred coral root. Spurred coral root. So the idea is that she has this bet with her friend, and she has to take a picture of it with one of her pointers. And they haven't found it in seven years. And so... They've they, been looking for this thing every year, and they've only found it once in seven years. If I found something that I've been looking for for seven years, I might have done a little more of a dance than she did. Yeah. She's pleased. So they have these little markers, right? They're like sharpened popsicle sticks with a colored ribbon tied around them. And that's how she, Emily is supposed to mark the location and take a photograph, right? With the oldest camera known to man. It is a very old camera, but she's an old lady, right? Okay, okay. So, because we, we find out later she's, what, 86, something 86 like that? 86, something like that. But she carries her markers in a fishing krill. Is that what they call it? I guess so. A fishing krill. It's like the basket that when it's you're fly fishing. gigantic. It's as big as the basket on her bike. To hold three of these little markers, one which she sticks in the ground, and two which easily fall out when she's startled by what she sees. Now, what does she see? Well, we first of all, yet. she hears oh, she hears oh, oh, oh. the bonking. Yes, right. <laughs> as Troy would put it, the bonking. Obviously, but it's not ass bandits. We'll get to ass bandits. <laughs> Obviously, it's it's a male person. We don't know if it's more than one person. He doesn't have any shoes on. We know that. We, he has no shoes, and we know that he is in the throes of pleasure. Yeah. So she sneaks up and sees it and just freaks out. Well, she screams. She drops her basket. And she runs away. Birds are startled. No, she doesn't drop her basket. She dumps the basket out accidentally, but carries the basket. Yes. Back to her truck. The naked feet find the pointers. Mm -hmm. She goes home. And when, when she's biking home, there's some really good acting there. Yeah. Like, her face is all crunched up with all sorts of things going on at once. And she's there is some really good acting there. She gets home. She doesn't lock her bike. She, she goes into lock her tricycle. She goes into Beehive Cottage and she makes two calls. Yeah. Now, you might not have noticed this, but there is a very important book right on the table, right in front of her. But we'll get to that later. Then there's a knock on the door. Right? Knock on the door. Ah! We She's get, dead. We get the first killing, right? We don't actually see anything, but we know she's dead, right? And we know that there's foul play because there was a knock on the door. Yeah. Okay. So now we get the old credits, what I call the old credits, yeah. which are the first season credits. And I think that's it. I yeah. think it's just the first season credits, which are these light black colored They're quaint watercolor portraits of a, of a nice little English village. Now, there and is a black cat in every single one of them. Every single one. And I wonder if those harken back to the original book covers. So this series is based on a bunch of books by a woman named Caroline Graham. And this one actually follows somewhat closely, not exactly, one of the books. Later, we're out of books yeah. and they start writing their own stories. All sorts of different stories. Now, while we're on the topic, though, of the writers... This episode was co-authored by Carolyn Graham, who wrote the books, and Anthony Horowitz. And Anthony Horowitz is important because he wrote the whole Alex Ryder series, which is like over a dozen books. But lately, he's been writing these new Sherlock Holmes books 
like the House of Silk. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're awesome. If you so like, if you like mysteries, you should read these mystery novels. But he also writes the new James Bond books. Oh, so he's he's kind of broad in what he he's, writes. He's, absolutely, yeah. and and no like small writer to have been brought on to write this first episode. No, it's I think the writing matches the story, matches the quality of the acting and the whole production really well. And and I don't know if, I assume it was his influence because he didn't write the original, but he sort of tamed the story down. Yeah, we've, <laughs> uh, now I haven't read the whole book. I have the book. I've skimmed a book. Uh, Sarah brought a passage to me and I want to wash my eyes out <laughs> after reading it. We'll get to where that is exactly. If you think Badger's Drift is shocking with all of the the incest and the almost beheading and the slitting of throats and all that stuff, it's got nothing on the book. The book is... (laughs) But I will tell you, like, the first chapter of the book is almost beat for beat the exact same thing. It is. That the cold open is. Yeah. Okay, so they arrive at the scene of the crime, which we don't know is crime yet, with a bunch of cops... And Constable's putting up tape and everything. And Troy, Sergeant Obvious. Oh, yeah. With his mid part and his hair. And could his ties and shirts match worse? I, I don't know who picked his color. shirts and like pink and purple ties. And it's just bad. It's just it's bad. crazy. And he goes, this is the place. And Barnaby's first line is really, I'd never have guessed. Yeah. Like he's snarky <laughs> right out of the book. But... Troy is being stupid. So, you know, that's the response he should get. So they go inside and we meet with another principal character, which is Dr. Bullard. Now, he's only referred to as Dr. Bullard in this episode, but his first name's George. He's a reoccurring character. He was on the show for 10 seasons, I think. It could even be more. He is the quintessential Midsummer Doctor until... Play, played by Barry Jackson, mm-hmm. who, if you didn't know, played a Time Lord on Doctor Who. Oh, that's fantastic. He he was Drax, a, a rebel Time Lord for, oh, I, he, was, he was on Doctor Who from 65 to 79. Oh, so. For a long time. I didn't know he was, I thought he was a guest star, but he was. He was, he was a recurring character on Doctor Who. Wow. And not a small one. No. Yeah. So here he is in his blue bunny suit, right? Checking out the body. No, I don't think he has the bunny suit at the beginning. How, I can't imagine him without the bunny suit. I he's think he's always just got on the blue tie. bunny suit. I think it's just a shirt tie. <laughs> the the rainbird's killing. That's I think different. he's in the bunny That's suit. That's different. Then. Yeah. Okay. But so. he says when he sees Barnaby, and I, I love this. And again, we've seen this episode so many times. But when you watch it for a purpose, when you watch it to make notes, you pick up these little things. When he sees Tom for the first time, he says, it's been a long time since I've seen you. I only ever see you when there's a corpse. So we we have to assume that there hasn't been a murder in a while. Well, there's going to be. There's going to be a lot for the next 20 years. There's going to be death aplenty in, in this little county, right? <laughs> then, and this is something, if we continue this podcast like we want to, this is going to be a reoccurring theme. She does a good dead body acting right there. She does. She does. She does. And later when they show the murder, the flashback reenactment of what actually happened, as a dead body, she gets flung around a little bit too. Yeah. She she takes it and she's she's no naked guy in a crop circle. No. We'll get to that. No. 
but she does a pretty good job. One of the best lines I like is, who would like to bump an, off an 80-year-old spinster? I'm just like, are they in a gangster movie all yeah, of a sudden? They're bumping people the bumping off. people off. Tom, of course, thinks it's murder. He gets kind of giddy when he thinks there's a possibility of murder there. And they they find out that the person who found her was Lucy Bellringer, played by Rosalie Crutchley. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's across uh, the way, and they go to see her. And Troy is so nasty to her. He is. He's a jerk. He's he's complete jerk. She says, I have to tell the bees, and his eyes roll so hard you can, like, hear it offset. So the idea is that you have to tell the bees. And we love this line. I still have to tell, I still haven't told the bees. Yeah. That, that, that is a quintessential Midsummer line. Yeah. Right? That quirky villageness. That kind of um, folksy, fairy kind of thing. You know, there are all these little traditions yeah. that are important in so, these little villages. So then they go outside and brilliance happens. Oh, boy. Dennis Rainbird comes up to them. Right. Because he's the undertaker and he wants to know if he can have her body. So he's a young guy who's an undertaker. First of all, he takes his card out of his pocket and the foley on that card is like... Yeah. And he says that she's signed up for the satin service and that he's here to take the body. It's one of their premier funeral packages. And Barnaby says he can't take the body yet. And he says, oh, I guess you suspect some naughtiness. It was was her neck. He's so creepy and fun and wild and crazy. And then Troy crosses the line. Yeah. Troy insults him basically implying that he's feminine by calling saying sir yeah and then he delivers the greatest line of this episode (laughs) which is you've got a right constable there don't you that is so brilliant (laughs) and i cannot believe they got away with that on itv i can't believe they get away with it still on it and you have to know so when i first saw this episode I didn't, I didn't know who he was. You know, he wasn't, as an actor, he wasn't anybody to me. And then later, my favorite Doctor Who well, he's, episode. He, he's in. He's in Blink. He's in Blink. He comes to the door at Blink. He's the the solicitor. Yeah. Who, who uh, takes, uh, brings the character something. And he's a great part in that. Yeah. So if you don't remember, Blink is the Doctor Who with the weeping angels that you can't look away from. First episode. The first weeping angels episode, yeah. But he's uh, he, he like, steals the scenery in this midsummer right off the bat. He's like, got the black bow in his hair that's, like, longer than his ponytail. His little collarless Nero jacket that was so cool in the late 90s. He's got a personalized Porsche. Yeah, it says Rip One on the back of it. Yeah. So the Porsche. The interesting thing about the Porsche is the actor had no idea how to drive the Porsche. (laughs) So he gets in the Porsche and you don't see it. They do a very good job of it. There are stagehands that push the car out as it goes. Oh, that's great. And then you see him driving away and it shows the license plate. That is not him in the car at all. So that actor was worried terrified of driving that car and <laughs> it ended up that they had to push it with him in it he um he he just bursts on he's great 
And then, so the next folks we go to are the doctor, right? We go to the Lesseter family. Well, well, quickly, just before that, Troy again says something stupid about, well, I guess you think it's murder. Uh, I, I guess we're going to investigate this. And Barnaby again is like, no, I'm just filling time to D. Yeah. <laughs> He's more sarcastic with Troy than he is with his other sergeants. He is. So Barnaby but Troy go- deserves it. Barnaby goes off to see the old lady's doctor to see if she had fainting spells or Pookie. something like that. And this is a trope in Midsummer Murders, which is the weak husband and the horrible wife. The nasty, we're, nasty we're wife. Going to see this over and over and over again. I wonder about Catherine Graham's feelings about marriage Carolyn Graham Graham. because so it it makes sense to go to Dr. Lesseter to find out if there were any kind of natural causes that might explain Emily maybe falling down the stairs and hitting her head if that's what happened so Barnaby's covering the bases but this is no typical family so Dr. Lesseter Trevor Lesseter he's like a little kind of mole man he's got real thick glasses he's kind of nerdy but his wife, Judith, which Judith, um, she just likes to go shopping. And she's so nasty to him. Right off the bat, in front right of the company, everything. And then the daughter just blows up everybody's alibis. And that's Jessica Hines, who was in Spaced and... Oh, I'm sorry. I got these mixed up. His wife's name is Barbara. The daughter's name is Judith. The da- daughter's name is Judith. Yeah. That's right. Barbara, not bouncing Barbara. No. We'll get to that. <laughs> but Jessica, yeah, Jessica Hine was in space. She's in Shaun of the Dead. She was also in two episodes of Doctor Who. Yes. Like, it's amazing. Well, we often joke that there are only like 12 actors in, in England anyway. Well, and this show proves it because we see the same actors playing different roles later on in the show. Yeah, they play different parts when they come back. But like, the two main old ladies here, Emily and Lucy, they were both in Lovejoy in 93, in the same season of Lovejoy, different episodes. They all, if if you're an actor who gets work in England, especially in 80s and 90s television, you're going to get on Midsummer. Yeah, you're going to end up on Midsummer and probably killed on Midsummer. More than likely killed. (laughs) So the daughter breaks up all the alibis and then stomps off and then they go, well, it's because of the boy she's dating. I don't really understand that. Like, because you're a, you have a boy that you're dating, it makes you just stomp off. And well, be upset. Michael Lacey could corrupt anybody. The killer. Well, one of the killers. <laughs> we'll get there. Yes, Michael Lacey, the artist, who who has his only scene with her next. Yeah, when he's drawing her, he's, and he wants her eyes a little afraid. Yes, so sad, soft eyes with a tiny bit of fear. Okay, creep master Da Vinci, I'm yeah. out of here. <laughs> but you know, she's living with her dad, who looks like Mr. Toad, and her stepmother, who's just awful incarnate in fancy clothes. Why wouldn't she want to go and hang out with the bad boy of the I'm village? I'm thinking there might be a lot of arguing in that house because the next scene is the doctor and his wife arguing, and then suddenly a blackmailer calls. Yeah. That's another thing about this episode and this show, it really hums along. Mm -hmm. You don't have a lot of waiting around. Mrs. Rainbird calls, that's Denny's mom that we now know, Iris Rainbird, and says, 
she's not going to stay quiet unless she gets 500 pounds. And essentially, the wife gets upset and says, go away, Pookie. Yeah. <laughs> now, if I got a phone call and reacted that way, and when you said, who was it? I was like, nobody, just go away. Would she you said just, no one, and they had a conversation. Would you just walk away? No, you'd stay there and go, wait a minute, no. who was it? <laughs> but not in midsummer. In because midsummer, number one just walks away. That's right. In midsummer, we just walk away. Then we get to the first Barnaby Home domestic scene. Joyce! Joyce! Who I actually think is the killer in every episode. I think she's making that, things that interesting is for Barnaby. That's a theory. That's and, one of my theories. And there is a podcast about that theory. I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> but I don't think Joyce does it. But it is. But the, she sees so much carnage. She over does. Poor 20. woman. She's, she should be so traumatized by the time he retires. But this is the first reference to her horrible cooking. Which I did read in the book. There's a whole two-page part about the beginning, in the beginning of the book, about Joyce's cooking, which is horrible. The woman doesn't have a job. It's one thing she could learn how to do. I mean, I know she's off joining like every club and activity in an entire county and putting her nose into any situation where somebody might want to kill somebody else right in front of her. But you'd think in all that time, she would have learned how to make some food. Well, she does take cooking lessons. It doesn't help her. She takes cooking lessons from the prostitute who becomes the actress is the... But that's in a later yeah, episode. In, the, in a later episode. She becomes a coroner later. She becomes a coroner in Lewis. So... But um, right now, while Tom is talking about Emily's neck being broken, she's sir, serving him neck of lamb. Neck of lamb with mushroom dumplings. I'm sorry. It sounds and looks disgusting. And then the frozen vegetables in the covered dish. Yes. And so... She's talking about this famous chef. I forget the name of the famous chef and says that this famous chef has done no wrong. And Barnaby under his breath goes, that's what I always thought too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Joyce. She tries. So then he goes, she asks if it's murder and he says, I think it is. I can feel it. And he kind of gets that giddiness again. But again, if George is to be believed, there hasn't been a murder in a while. I mean, what's he doing if he doesn't have a murder? Exactly. So it's probably a pretty boring place. So then he has to go out because he's Barnaby and he can never be anywhere where he needs to be on time. Not if it has to do with his family. No. And he has to go out to the helpline, which is one of the people that the old lady at the beginning called. So yeah. we move now to the helpline, which is or should be the helpline. That is clearly not about stopping smoking. No, because everybody there. Everyone there is smoking cigarettes. And I love that it's just kind of a generic helpline. It's not a suicide helpline or a, you know, domestic abuse helpline. It's just the helpline. And everybody in the episode knows what it is. Oh, yeah. Because if you live in Midsummer, You call this, the Midsummer helpline. This is who you call, right? And you talk to only people who use their Christian names. Yes. Terry. So he talks to Terry... Who has the worst sweater oh, in all it's of a bad time. sweater. Yeah. She says that the old lady called up and basically said these cryptic messages and that they only use Christian names here. Terry's nice, but she gets creepy later on. As well, well, the whole point with her is just to know that Emily 
is so shocked by what she saw that she wants to talk to somebody, but she can't figure out who to talk to. So she calls the helpline and then basically talks to herself while on the phone. And then knows who to call. And then figures out who to call. Then she calls directory. Assistance to get the number of somebody in Brighton. Now, and we'll get to this at the end, but if I'm Barnaby, I'm calling that number in Brighton. Well, we don't know because she didn't get the number because she got killed before she could get the number. Whatever. They should have called way earlier (laughs) to Brighton. She says, I need a number in Brighton. And then there's a knock on the door. Then the next thing we see is Barnaby eating real food at the police canteen. He's getting bacon. He's getting sausages. He's getting beans. It's real food. And Troy goes, don't you get breakfast at home? And... Deadpan Barnaby again says, no, Troy, I do not. Cooked breakfast. And then Troy talks about the phone calls and talks about the the photographs that they got from the camera, shows it to him, and they both get up and leave. Yeah, because it's more important than his cooked breakfast. And he hasn't eaten a stitch of his cooked breakfast. No. And this is when they go and they pick up... Uh, Lucy Bellringer, and they take her into the woods to have her help them identify where the photograph was taken, right? So where is the coral spur root, whatever it's called? Troy, again, is a bastard here. He's like, all these people are out looking for a flower. It's an orchid. It's an orchid. She's so nasty back to him. But then, so they discover the spot of bonking. Right. And I noticed. And, and Barnaby demonstrates his very good eyesight by identifying a fragment of a blanket that is maybe a centimeter by a centimeter. It's black and it's stuck in a weed. But but before that, Troy and this old lady who seconds before were fighting, Troy helps her down the hill. Oh, it's he, so nice. His mother would be proud. He would. He doesn't let her roll down that cliff no. on her own. No. He helps her down. So then Barnaby goes, I want this whole area gone over. And, <laughs> and Troy, Troy stands says, up and goes, I want this whole area, gone, this over. Whole area gone over. Yeah, it just reiterates the same command. But then, you know, we get one of the, the moments of Troy, right? Because they're walking back to the car after finding this clearing where clearly something went on. No, no, they're walking, they're walking to the rainbirds. That's right. They're walking to the rainbirds because they see... Her eerie from there, right? And they think, oh, they somebody there the house, may yeah. may have been able to see this, right? They might know what's going on. And Troy, in just a few lines of dialogue, manages to be so offensive. He says they she saw somebody bonking, they were at it. It was adultery or maybe ass bandits. Yeah. And says something about maybe it was the gay undertaker. <laughs> right away. And then Barnaby calls him a Nazi. Well, he says he's less politically correct than a Nuremberg rally. Which is a Nazi but thing. did you see Troy's face when no. he says that? Troy looks confused, like a puppy tipping his head, like, what's that? I've been to a rally before. What are you talking about? So they go into the Rainbird's house, and again, we are blessed with fantasticness. They are so over the top. So over the top. And we've only seen a little bit of Iris at this point, but we've seen Dennis, and we know what he's like. 
So you can only imagine he must have one heck of a mother, right? Oh, and Boy, she is a mother. And they are prepared. Did they know they were coming over? I think because they did. Because they made a lot of sandwiches. Well, you know, Dennis, she says, put, put the kettle to the hob or whatever. And 30 seconds later, he rolls in with a trolley, not only with tea, but with all kinds of little finger sandwiches. Now, finger it. sandwiches in the shapes of... Playing card. Playing card suits. suits. Yeah. Right? And this is like, as a child, my mother did food for card parties for the Anglican church where we lived in Canada and made these sandwiches. I remember these cutouts being at home that she would make sandwiches that were different types based on The the suits. So this seemed absolutely normal to me other than the fact that they just had this whipped up but did she ever make ice sombreros so <laughs> you see them sitting there and you're it like two what are they tier cart right it's a two tier we've got cart. a teapot we've got cups sugar cream on the top there are like three plates of sandwiches and the playing card ones are only one plate there are other plates yeah. and, and then underneath the, and then the lower tier is where we have the sweets, right? Which which they have iced sombreros. They're yellow looking cakey things that have a dome on top, like a peak, and they've got like red icing on them. They're both confusing and racist at the same time. And she offers them one, and I, I every time I see it, no, I think- No, Dennis offers the, yeah, the ice sombreros. that's right. Every time I see it, I think, why don't they take one? Because I want to know what they are. It's like, please eat an ice sombrero. <laughs> and they're talking about stuff. Uh, Catherine Lacey, who is Michael Lacey's sister, the killers. Yeah. And they say that they saw her in town going to the post office. And Dennis just looks at them like he could not believe this at all, ever. <laughs> And he calls uh, Troy a constable again. Yeah. He doesn't call him a constable, a constable. He and gets Troy's, corrected. Troy's says, I'm like, a sergeant. I'm a sergeant. And then she says, well, Barnaby's like, this was like 8 o'clock at night. What kind of birds were you looking out your hide to see? And she goes, owls. Owls? And she's got those giant glasses. It's just fantastic. And acting. she must wear, I don't know, 40 pounds of jewelry all the time. She's got these like long beads on and she's got the chain on her glasses and rings and a printed top and purple opalescent eyeshadow like up to her eyebrows this woman is a standard character in women's institute fiction if there is (laughs) such a thing right so the actress's name is elizabeth spriggs she died in 2008 yes so we don't have her anymore but she was fantastic. But I can tell you, I know where this character really came from. If you want a little bit of trivia. Where did this character really come from? In 87, she was in a Doctor Who that was a multi-part Doctor Who, okay? And she played one of these three women who were called Rezies, And they kind of lived in this big... Um, it was like an apartment block, right? Like a council block. But it was in space. 
and they, like had, they are. And they had been, well, yeah, council blocks are always in space. And they had been cut off from supplies, so they were cannibals. Okay? okay. But these three ladies are still sitting around this table with their marigold gloves and their aprons, and they're like eating little finger sandwiches that don't really do anything for them because they're not real food, because other people are the real food. But Elizabeth Spriggs in this character, she's called Tabby. She has purple eyeshadow, a printed top, her penny on it, all these jewels and rings, necklaces, but the coup de gras is a lavender snakeskin iridescent headband that's got giant rhinestones all over it. We must see pictures of That this. she wears. And she's got the same makeup and the same face. Do you think Graham saw that episode? And created the character based, or she based this characterization on this? No, I think maybe Elizabeth Spriggs brought her own wardrobe. <laughs> like, maybe that's just how she dressed. I, don't I know. think you probably could not tell that lady what to do. Well, even when she, when she comes back, right, in, in 06, in a later midsummer season, Shh. as somebody else, she's not as all over the top. So maybe, you know, maybe. she also played... Um, Bertie Wooster's Aunt Agatha yes. in Jeeves and Wooster. And she and was Wooster. fantastically overbearing yes. in that role, too. She's just super, super good at being that mischievous old lady who's kind of bossy. But this is the first, but this scene, we see her and Dennis together and we we get that first glimpse of the creepiness How of their creepy relationship. It is. Right? Speaking of not creepy, then we meet up with Cully. Yeah, Cully, the non-creepy daughter, who's at... Oxford? Oxford. No, Cambridge. Cambridge, Cambridge. Oh, yes. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Cambridge. Darn. Which I was like, Cully went to Oxford? Cully went to Cambridge? Yeah, because when you see her later, you're like, did she even finish college? I don't know if she can focus on one thing for five minutes. Barnaby immediately is like, where's the green hair and the tattoo? Meaning, like, he can't see them. So, did she have a face tattoo or a neck tattoo or something? Well, you know, she's a typical college student. She's in her first year. She's thinking about changing majors. But he's most happy to see her. Well, probably because he loves her and she's a good daughter. But she always brings him food. Yes. And this, again, like, this hammer... Troy is an ass and... Joyce can't cook. If that's the two things that we're supposed to get from those yeah, characters. Yeah, those are consistent. Because Barnaby's eating dinner with Cully and Joyce with candles yep. and the lights on. Quail. There's not goes, much there's meat not on much, this chicken. Not, not much meat on this chicken. And Joyce goes, well, it's quail. And when, and when he gets called away, Cully rolls her eyes knowing this, this is what happens. And he looks relieved. And Joyce looks sad. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, ooh, I don't have to eat this. And who's on the phone but Terry again? Yeah. Terry. And Terry. From the helpline. Terry is, she does a great job as an actress. I, I don't know the actress's name off the top of my head. But she has a thing on her face. And they, they do a good job of hiding it here. And she <laughs> says that, remember the old lady, she said, just like poor Annabella. Yeah. Her name's Corey Pullman, and she was also in a Doctor Who. She Everybody, was in four episodes in 1989. I, I didn't know we were going to talk about Doctor Who so much on our Midsummer Murders it's podcast. It's hard not to. You know, and I could almost say that 
half of these actors that we've mentioned so far have either been in a Marple, a Poirot, or a Lovejoy as well. Absolutely. Which are all three awesome series too. Yes. Mm. So then we get the best Rainbird scene ever. Oh, it's so <laughs> cringy. Oh, Dennis has recovered the rug the or rug, blanket which is or what whatever. British people call a blanket. Um, that Barnaby found the piece of at the bonking site. <laughs> they were trying to get rid of it. They. He yeah. says they. So we know it's more than one person. And how are they getting rid of it? They had it like, wrapped in plastic, tied around a rock, and they were going to throw it in the pond? Apparently. What did, did he go scuba diving to get it? How did he get it? Denny gets it out. Of he, course he He's did. a doer. Because he's a good boy. He's a good boy. He's a good it's so yucky. In an episode with cringe-worthy relationships all over the place, we have the doctor's cringe-worthy relationship. We have the cringe-worthy relationship between the artist and the daughter. All sorts of other cringe-worthy relationships. We have Dennis and his mother kissing on the mouth and... Who's a good boy? Who's a good boy? Oh, it's so creepy. And okay. they do so well. So, so in the episode, you get this impression that he's mama's little boy, maybe to the extreme. In the book, it is not hinted at. It is clear that there is some wrong behavior between them. There is ear nibbling. Ear licking. And baby talk. And hands under clothes. So again, when I say I think Anthony Horowitz kind of pulled pulled the story back a little bit to make it a little more palatable. I think that's one of the things that they took out because yeah, they are really cringy, but they're not as cringy as they could be. So then we move on to Troy's secondary trait. Troy's secondary trait is that he is the worst driver in all of England. Oh yeah. And he's been on the course four times. Several times. (laughs) He almost kills a guy on a bike. They go out to Tie House, and the reason why they're going out to Tie House is because this woman named Bella, Annabella, see, Bella, Bella Annabella. But just Bella. Was killed five years ago, perhaps losing them the best kept village title. But we also know, because the Rainbirds give them that clue, right? They yep. say you should go to Tie House because of Bella, but also because Catherine Lacey is marrying Henry. Who is. The Lord of Thai House. The Lord of Thai House. Now, this is another theme in this entire episode in which Catherine Lacey and Michael Lacey are fingered as the killers constantly. Guess what? They're the killers. Yeah, everybody's like, oh, well, he's he's a bad seed. He's a poor influence. She's money hungry, money digger or whatever. And Barnaby just doesn't get it yet. He, do, he doesn't get it. So we're introduced to David Whiteley in the parking lot of Ty House. David Whiteley, a reoccurring character. Yeah, he'll be back. He, he's the caretaker. Then, he's the caretaker of Ty House. And then Barnaby has a suitcase, like a briefcase. Yep. Thank God he got rid of this. They go in and they meet up with Henry Trace, played by Julian Glover, who is a fantastic actor. He he's been in a number of things, including Empire Strikes Back and Last Crusade. He's the guy who drinks from the bad uh, chalice Chalice in Last Crusade. He's also, also Maester Pycelle in Game of Thrones. He's also Maester Pycelle in Game of Thrones. And the voice of Aragog 
in the Harry Potter movie. The giant spider. Oh, he is? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So they meet up with them. And, and a Bond villain. And a Bond villain. Yeah, really, and a Bond villain. Julian Glover has so much cred. If you know all these other things that he's been in, when they first show him sitting in his giant drawing room in his wheelchair, he's you're like, oh, shit yeah, just like, got serious. It, it just got serious. And so another thing I noticed here, and it, you go back and look at all the scenes, Troy is in the background, and they told Troy as an actor that if you're not talking, write notes in your notebook. Yeah, in your tiny notebook. Or in your tiny notebook, and make sure you show your pinky ring. Why Troy has a pinky ring, I don't know. Well, and when he's not taking notes, he's looking dismissively, rolling his eyes and sighing. I mean, really, nobody can say anything that he believes. He's not happy. So they go over Bella's death, and... This woman named Phyllis Cadell is Bella's sister, and she goes shooting with a with the doctor and everybody else. And then, essentially, what happens is she hurts her leg, she hurts her ankle, and Michael Lacey, uh, Michael Lacey is taking her back to Thai House, and she gets shot. Now, that shot where she actually where it shows her getting shot and blood erupting from her body would have been michael lacy would have been dead too yeah because those shots those there are lots of little pellets right i mean yep. you see she gets like six or eight pellets in her vest but michael lacy who is apparently indestructible man he's right next to her right next to her and doesn't get shot at all yeah so he runs but back those were pretty good effects those were like explosive blood packs yep. in her vest yep there now, are some good effects she, there. she is wearing a big hunting vest that's fully well rigged to explode like that but it's yeah it's a pretty it's a pretty good um pretty good shot there so he runs back this is all told in flashback to the house right and calls an ambulance and calls an ambulance and then first appearance of Catherine Lacey who comes in and says that she lives at Holly Cottage now but she'll move to the big house once she marries Lord Vader or whatever he was in in uh <laughs> um, Empire and Benji the dog hates Troy all dogs hate Troy but not cats as we'll soon find yeah. out <laughs> cats like him but when so so Henry has to go see to a generator that's going to disrupt their wedding if it's placed in the wrong place right so Catherine says I'll take you up to meet Phyllis who is Bella's sister so so Bella is dead, but Phyllis is living in the attic, apparently, of her brother-in-law's home. And Phyllis Cadell is played by Selena Cadell, right? So it's like they keep her last name. Who knows why? And she's fantastic. She is if one the of the best character actors in England. If the Rainbirds were not in this episode, she would be the standout. Yeah, yeah. So she's eating bonbons, sitting in her apartment. Watching a game show. Watching a game show. <laughs> and Catherine Lacey comes in and says, the police are here to see you. And she freaks out. <laughs> you almost she said freak the F out. <laughs> she drops her candy. And she's like, uh, uh, she's just no idea what, she looks so guilty. 
guilty for who knows what, but she claims it's because she was worried that they had come about her car tax. What uh, can can somebody in England explain car tax to us? We understand TV tax. Oh yeah, it could TV be. license. We understand that, <laughs> but car tax like is that like your licensing fee or something? I don't know. And we never see her drive. Does she even no, have a car? I don't know. Who knows? Well, we'll get to the driving situation <laughs> with that family at some point. But she's this like super mousy, but absolutely on edge woman, and she, she's so good at being super nervous and like, sure her eyes she does such good acting with her eyes yeah super flat hair big long knitted vest thing i don't, I don't know what over she, a denim shirt over a long skirt box of bonbons i guess it's very weird if anyone can identify those bonbons i'd like to know too but w- what we learn though is that so and, and again, so I was trying to do some math here, right? So she says that she came to the house to help Bella, her sister. So this is, yes. Seven years ago, okay. right? And then Bella died five years ago. Yeah, and Bella's been dead for five years. So she was in the house for two years when Bella and Henry were, were together, right? Were alive. Yeah. I think we can assume that Henry and Bella had been married prior to that. They didn't just get married. And that, so the sister, so Phyllis came to help because that's when Henry had to be in the wheelchair. Yes. Officially, he was in the wheelchair. And I don't, do they actually say that he had polio? Yes, yes. So he caught Bell polio. Bell says that he caught polio in like the 80s. 1989, <laughs> he catches polio and is a wheelchair. No one else in England has polio. Yeah, everybody else has been vaccinated but Henry Trace, who winds up in a, in a wheelchair. So, yeah. So now, she, does she tell the story of Bella's death here? No, she doesn't, because they've already got it from Henry downstairs, so she doesn't reiterate it there. So then they're leaving, and Snarky McSnarkerson Troy says that she was scared shitless, which, again, I'm like, whoa! Yeah, (laughs) this quaint little show, he's like... Talking about ass bandits and being scared shitless. And Barnaby's like, you've got away with words, don't you, Troy? And Troy, again, looks completely perplexed. So, but let's go back, okay? When Henry is recounting how Bella died, there are some real problems with how she died that are beyond who shot her. The reason why Michael is walking with her is that she's tripped on this route, right? She's twisted her ankle. They're on the far side of the village. Right. So we Away from Thai House. Right. So we assume that if Thai House is at midnight, the village is at the center of the clock and they're at six o'clock in the woods, right? Fair guess. So she's gotta like go through the village to get to get home. But she's gonna walk with Michael back somewhere because she's twisted her ankle. Though But then the camera pans. And not only is Henry on an ATV, he could easily say, hop on the back and I will take you home. Yeah, maybe he can't use his legs. How does he drive the ATV with polio? Well, all he's got to do is hold on to it with his legs, right? Okay. If he's in the seat, you okay. drive with your hands. Well, I, I'm glad he doesn't drive a car until, until later. later. <laughs> yeah, so he could take her. But also, the path that Michael is walking her on has a vehicle at the end of it, like a Land Rover, right there. He could easily have walked her to to the car. There are some problems with that, and we'll get into it 
when we get into Phyllis's part. Anyway. I just think she's surrounded by people who, you know, aren't willing to take her home. <laughs> this poor woman has twisted her ankle so bad, and they're like, well, but you can walk to the village. I know that there are all these vehicles, but we couldn't possibly interrupt our shooting our party shooting to take you home. Important. And the place, it must have smelled like cordite big time they're like on top of each other shooting yes there's just gun smoke everywhere it looks so unpleasant they go to holly cottage to see michael lacy it's a mess no no troy walks up to the building and goes creepy yeah what is creepy about it there are beautiful flowers outside well it does have that kind of weird twisted wood thing over I the door guess, that looks kind of strange. I, I was kind of like, why is But it as creepy? soon as they get inside, you think, God, what a pit. There's dirty dishes everywhere. There's like some kind of still or something sitting on the counter behind where Michael sits with his one Coke. His one Coke. And he gets out of the fridge. He doesn't offer anybody. I bet you Troy would want a Coke. But you know, Michael's not the kind of guy who would offer somebody a drink. He's not, not going to bring out ice sombreros for the cops. No. <laughs> there were no isobrows here. And this is the first appearance of warrant cards, too. That's true. They yep. don't call them warrant cards, but they show, they their, show their badges. They show their warrant cards. Yeah. So this cottage that they live in is on the grounds of Thai House, right? It's just yep. on the edge of the grounds of Thai House. And they live there because... They were wards of Henry Trace. Their parents died in a car crash when they were young, and their parents worked for him. And so he put them in the cottage with a nanny. And Catherine tells us all this while she's walking up the stairs to Phyllis's apartment. Which is creepy that he's now marrying her. Yeah, considering we know that she was, what, eight or nine when her parents died? So he's basically been her father, uncle, something or other since then. The word ward is mentioned. They were wards of of him. Yeah. And they were given this cottage and it's, it, it's a pit. They're not taking good care of it. They're not taking good care of it. But that doesn't matter. It's because, it's because for Michael Lacey, his work is his life. His art is his life. Is his life. So then he recounts the story of Bella being shot. And this is where we get into the really bizarre situation so he recalls what happens and he says that everybody was there she tripped she busted her ankle he was taking her back to Thai house okay or the so, village so or going whatever. from 12 down to 6 remember mm-hmm. our clock metaphor <laughs> and then she gets shot okay so now Michael has says I'm going to go get an ambulance. He's going to run. So he runs from 12 o'clock. We can only guess through the village, <laughs> which apparently has no phones or ambulance service, to Thai House, which is they say many times the other side of the village, mm-hmm. to get to a phone. And he picks up the phone, dials three nines, which is nine one one in England, and tells Catherine that Bella's been shot. What the hell is Catherine doing there? First of all. Second of all, but he's out, he's not the fastest runner. He's not the fastest runner, as we because, will see later, because the world record holder for running <laughs> from the top of the clock to the bottom is Bella. No, it's no, not Bella. Phyllis. It's Phyllis because she may like Phyllis she's should be on the Olympic working. team. Yeah, she should be there. on the Olympic team. <laughs> she's faster than Usain Bolt. <laughs> Because she's already she's already been up to her apartment and locked herself in to cool down. But we don't know this yet, but right. it comes out. Right. 
and then lurked around when she heard Michael come in and overheard him telling Catherine, okay, so we know Phyllis is faster than she so, can be, so you but can say, so do they. So, so you could say, so you could say, well, Phyllis just left beforehand. But later on, we'll see that Phyllis did not leave beforehand. Well, but wait a minute. <laughs> so <laughs> we're kind of jumping all over the place now, but they've seen the episode. They know what we're talking about. We say Phyllis is so fast, right? Because she can run all the way from where they're shooting all the way to Ty House because and beat Michael there. But we see her run later when we see what Iris saw. And she's not a good runner. She's gone. She, she's got the shotgun broken over her arm and she's running like like a drunk kid. And like, that, ah! And that, that actress, she's wonderful, but she is not built for speed. No, she's not built but for speed. But apparently she is. But if that's her fastest crazy panic run, it's not very fast. It's faster than Michael Lacey. That's true, that's true. But not as fast as Iris Rainbird's binoculars. They leave the house, they leave Holly Cottage, and Michael goes and paints angry in red, and we don't see what the picture is. No. Oh, we will. The creepiest painting of all time. But we have another dinner scene first at the yes. Barnaby household. The Barnaby household. <laughs> and Cully wants to take him out to dinner. Cully, <laughs> you know, there's a trick that if you're a family member doesn't know how to cook, they say, well, we should do dinner. And you always say, well, maybe we should go out. Mark says this is a trick because this is uh, his tactic whenever he comes home to Canada because his mother can't cook. My mother has, she's cooking challenged. I love her. She's amazing. <laughs> but we always offer to take her out. Not the best cook. Always offered to take her out. And she goes, no, I have pot of few. Frozen. Frozen. Which, oh. We had to look it up. But it's French beef stew, and it's like a joint. It's not like like a, a pot roast cut up in a beef stew. No. It's like a like a joint of like oxtail or some it's, weird thing with vegetables. And I cannot imagine that it's good thought out. And it probably wasn't good when she put it in the uh, freezer. No, she made it, no. right? And then they're just on to the next thing, yep. right? Yeah. Which and is Dennis going lilies and white satin white lilies and satin service. Yeah. He's he's fastidious for being a creepy ice sombrero he, serving. He's serious guy. about the funeral business. But then we see the crew at Ty House getting in the Land Rover to go to Emily's funeral. And who's driving? Henry. How can Henry drive? Because he know. has polio. Yeah, his legs don't work, but he can drive, right? But Phyllis knows her place and she she'll sit in the back seat. Then we have the longest voiceover, I bet, of the entire show. Yeah. In which Barnaby, in a conversation with Troy in the car, goes over all the suspects. And it just fills up time. He recounts the play. Like, we have this person and this person and this person and this person. He goes through the whole cast, right? And they have the montage of them all standing around the grave for him to do it over. Including Michael Lacey flirting with his girlfriend. Well, and Catherine Lacey whispering something in Henry's ear that makes them both giggle, yeah, which is creepy and inappropriate. It's so weird. And then on top of all the weirdness, because Barnaby and Troy are there, um, Bell Ringer is like, let's go get drunk. <laughs> but don't forget, we also have the two grave diggers. The worst grave diggers ever. They just throw the flowers on top of the grave. If you haven't seen this episode in a while, if you've only seen it once, you probably didn't pay very close attention to these two guys that dig the grave. They're fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> 
go and just watch that scene again because when they put her in the ground. That this is the scene when he goes drink sherry with Mrs. Bellringer. She says that Henry has polio. Right. And that Mary Sharp was the nanny. The nanny. Who took care of the laces. Took care of the laces. And Troy is in the background like a Bond villain. Petting a cat. Petting a cat. At first, I didn't know what he was doing with his hands. Because you can't see the cat. You, you can just see his hand. And it's the cat Wellington. And No, but, but before we go too far into that scene, just really quick. At the cemetery, when they put the casket in the ground, you can see that Emily was born in 1913 and died in 1996. Now, what we know about Emily in her younger years was that she was a teacher, right? <laughs> And famously, she was Iris Rainbird's teacher. Iris Rainbird, who is herself an old lady, right? So, so I did the math. So if she was born in 13, she's 83 when she died. Let's assume she was 20 years old when she was teaching school. That means that Iris Rainbird can't be any older than 63. And, and does not look 63. I think she looks at least 60. At least 60. But a little bit older, right? So, I don't know. Maybe she was the youngest school teacher ever. Well, she taught everybody. That's the whole thing. Everybody's like, oh, she taught me in school. Yeah. She like, was how the... long did this poor woman teach And school? did they have like a one-room schoolhouse where she taught everybody? I, I, I guess don't know. so. Yeah. I guess so. Poor Emily. So, now we come to the Rainbird's coup de grace. The, the death of the Rainbird's. They're sitting talking about how much money they're going to get. Yep. With De the tea tray. And Dennis says he wants another marrow mayonnaise, which is... <laughs> because this uh, is the tray that doesn't have ice sombreros. It has a little sailboat. Yes. Right? And Iris is eating one of the sailboat cookies. And it's a confection from south of France consisting of chestnuts, candied, uh, like sugar. Yeah. And Leon, I did not know this, is famous for its chestnuts. So that is what, what a Maron Leonese is. That's better than what I thought he said originally. Because I thought he said... Marrow Leonese. And in England, a marrow is a big zucchini. Yep. And to Leonese, it's like a typical, it's like done with potatoes and they're kind of fried and layered. And so I was thinking this was like, like fried, savory. Fried zucchini in layers, like no, rotten no, no, potatoes. No. But no, no. yeah. It's, it's chestnuts in, in sugar. Soon after that, we get the knock at the door. Knock on the door. And the then, killer knocks. The killer is very polite. It's very polite. A number of times. Yeah. The, they killers kill people, they knock on the but door. But Iris is so interested in gloating and all the money that they're going to get from their blackmail and the yumminess of the cookie sales from her sailboat that she hardly even like notices that Dennis is walking in with his throat well, no, slit. But so again, fully, you hear the knife go in. And you hear... <laughs> Daddy comes in. Covered up his neck. She's like, falls oh, on Denny, the floor. who is it? And then he falls on the floor blood, and blood spurting everywhere. Blood spurts out of his collar. Yeah. I don't really understand how Catherine Lacey did surgical strikes like well, that. Well, somebody behind him was clearly like squeezing one of those balls, right? To make it pump out. Yes. <laughs> so not only did they have to push him in a car, but they had to squeeze a little bulb to make blood squirt out of his collar. Then we see the bloody knife. We get a little bit of killer cam. Get knife cam. A knife cam. And then Iris Rainbird bites them. Bites it. We see Iris getting stabbed, right? Yep. And, and 
We see her get stabbed several times. Yes. In in silhouette. Right. But like in the torso. Yes. But when her body is discovered, George... Her head's clean right off. ...says that her head is barely attached, right? So we've got this image of Catherine Lacey not only like slitting Dennis's throat and letting him fall down, but then walking over to Iris, stabbing her, and then like sawing at her neck just for fun... And again, in the book, this is much more disturbing. Oh, yeah. In the book, Dennis isn't dead. They think he's dead because he's covered in blood laying over his mother's body. But what he's actually doing is holding her head on. And he's like catatonic. Not good. No, no, not good. They the bring death, in the, the police. two really the awesome mobile characters. police unit. Yeah. They, uh, they hire on a, a crane. crane. Yeah. They bring it in and then never mention it again or never go in it. No, but that, the, the mobile incident unit, unit signifies this is serious now. Then, we have to be on site to do this well, investigation, this is right? This is murder. This yeah. is not some old lady who maybe fell down the stairs. This is some murder. It's full on now. They, the char lady found her. They go inside and find all these notebooks. Years and years of notebooks right. where the Rainbirds are taking notes on everybody and blackmailing them. Everybody. Right. And they have these amazing maps on the wall, including one that is a Badger's Drift map, which I really want to see. <laughs> like, I really want that image. It, but it's clear that Iris has been doing this for a long time, yeah. right? And they've, they've got a family business, right? They've got the funeral home. They own that funeral home. So you got to assume Dennis runs that and all she does is sit up there and watch people, people and blackmail people all day long. So in the end, the char lady fingers again, Catherine Lacey. Like again, it's them. Oh, I don't know who because it is. Because she finds their bodies. Yeah. Miss and says Quinn that, is her name, I yes, think. Yes, I think so. Finds them. And, and she's fantastic. Fantastic too. Like yeah. she's got the big glasses. She's got the obnoxious clothes. She's got this headband on. She smokes like a chimney and, and she, drinks and drinks and says of Mrs. Rainbird, like, well, she was odd, but she was always kind to me in her way and always nice to me. And yeah. So back we go to Holly Cottage. Yeah, because we now we've got. More people saying Catherine Lee. Testimony that, yeah, that somebody was there. And this is the first time we really get to see not only the cottage, but the studio and the kind of space in between. And one of the things I noticed, and I can't, I don't know why. So in the kitchen, there's this big hanging string of onions, right? Like a dozen onions all hung together like you do garlic. But when they go to the studio, there's like four more of them hanging out there, but in the space between. They really like onions. They must really like onions. They they are full of incestuous onions. Or they're afraid of vampires and don't understand. Possibly. (laughs) So they're fighting. Michael and Catherine Lacey are fighting. Yeah. And they show up. Michael runs out of the house. They're having their fake fight. Michael runs out of the house. And all I can think is Dexie's Midnight Michael. Oh, yeah. Because he's got overalls on. He looks like he should be in the Dexie's Midnight Runner video. Yeah. And he's not going to get her a wedding present. So then they take off. And Troy and 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 Barnaby are like, they left the house. Let's go in. No war. No need. Whatever. If if somebody has a problem with it, it's your problem, Troy. We're going to blame Troy, yeah. They find a messy room and clean room in the nanny's room. Right. And so it's clear there's three beds, but only one is being slept in. So then Barnaby goes back to the crime scene and picks up all the journals and then takes them home. 
Yeah, because that's what you do. You take the evidence home. Okay. But you put it in plastic bags. You do. And you read it late into the night. Creepy. And then Colleen comes in. It's in the middle of the night. We know mom's already in bed. Joyce has long been in bed. Not cooking. And now Colleen, who's been home for several days, suddenly whips out a sandwich from Marks and Spencer. Yes. To give to him. How long has she been holding on to that sandwich? I don't know. Like since she got home? I don't know. Like three days she's been holding on to that sandwich? Don't know. It doesn't matter because it's still better than Joyce's cooking. It is. Because Barnaby, Barnaby is willing to eat it. And Barnaby goes, she asks him how he felt. And Barnaby's like, I didn't feel anything. When and he went, So he sees all these bodies and this really bloody crime scene for the Rainbirds. And he, yeah. He says he didn't feel anything. Yeah. And then they move on to Cully's play. Well, no, he... It's interesting because what he says is he didn't he didn't feel anything. But then he also says when the rainbirds were killed, when he found out they'd been murdered, it's like, oh, good. There were more murders. So now I have more clues. Yeah. And I can get further along in the case. Well, he loves the chase. It's clear. But but it's also clear that he's kind of torn. Like he doesn't want more people to die, but he also wants to solve the crime. And maybe more murders will give him more clues and make him more capable of solving it. I can see that. He's, he's kind of torn by it, you yeah. know. But what I love is that neither Joyce nor Cully are at all phased by the fact that he comes home talking about people being beheaded and bludgeoned and in puddles of their own blood Not and whatever. Not phased at all. They're like, oh, want some dinner? Not phased at all. <laughs> on to Cully, on to her acting, and the clangor that is, the, I guess the last act is what really matters. Yeah. So now we move into the last act. Yeah. It's pretty telegraphed there, isn't it? So they find Catherine Lacey at Thai House the next day. She says, I was at the Rainbirds to drop off mushrooms because Iris Rainbird wanted some mushrooms. So she has another gigantic ba- it's basket. It's the second gigantic with maybe basket. maybe an inch of mushrooms in it. In Thai House, which is this huge estate, she and Henry are both in the kitchen and it is the crappiest kitchen I've ever seen. There's like two cabinets. They're like one foot by two foot. They're full of mugs. The table is all chipped and gross. It is not the kitchen of an estate. And so they have like a three or four minute scene in there and they go, well, actually we're here to arrest somebody. Yeah. And you're like, I would have led with the arrest. Well, but if they had led with that, then they couldn't have had that conversation. So they go up to arrest Phyllis because Barnaby has figured out that Phyllis shot Bella. And she goes, I did it. I'll get my coat. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She's much less nervous when they actually confront her because now she's not worried anymore. She's been caught out because all these years, for five years, she's been waiting for the cops to come around the corner, right? Yeah. Any minute, they're going to come and get her. And now they finally got her. So now she's kind of resigned to it. They come back. They talk to Bella at the, they interrogate her. She goes, I want to get rid of Bella. It was a crazy, crazy day. I decided to shoot Bella. Got some Dutch courage by drinking some vodka. <laughs> she was walking along. I shot her. And then at the speed of light, I ran back to the house. Yeah, in her crazy head back arms flailing run that Iris saw. <laughs> saw Michael Lacey call for the ambulance and then thinks she got away with it. Yeah. Until Iris Rainbird calls her up like a week later and says, this is it. No, they, they invited her over. That's right. She doesn't know why they've invited Didn't her over. Didn't know why. And then Denny rolls out the infamous tea tray and whips off a cloth, and there's a shotgun laying in the middle of the top of the tray. And the sandwiches are different suits Yes, there. But, but it's like, this is the definitive evidence that they know that she did it. 
a shotgun from a shooting party where everybody they should have had, had a, a running shotgun. shoes because yeah. clearly <laughs> they would have been burnt or something. Yeah. It's like, it's no evidence at all. Everybody was probably using the same shells with similar guns. They're not personal guns. Like, it really isn't evidence at so, all. But but, I, the, but again, the look on the rainbird's face. And their evil they, laugh. When they, they, they peel back that cloth and then they look at each other and they're like, <laughs> oh, it's a good boy. You know, so like, you can just, they're just relishing it. They right? take her for 50K. Yeah. They take everything that she inherited. Yeah. So then they interview David Whiteley, who is in the journal also with a little red star beside his name and we find out that David Whiteley is Ugh, bonking Barbara. Bonking Barbara, right? So now we know the doctor's wife and Michael Lacey are bonking. And he also saw the old lady at the beginning and totally lies about her. Yeah. So and he says, you know, you should look at Michael Lacey. Yeah. <laughs> Again, these people are like it's Michael and Catherine Lacey and Barnaby and Troy are like, hmm, hmm. wonder who it could be. And so is this, so it's, it's not this scene. It's an earlier scene um, when they f- go back to the doctor and they say there was no test match. So the doctor's alibi is broken, right? For the day of the murders. Judith has already made the joke about Mrs. Whiplash, this woman that she's saying that that her dad is having an affair with. So he goes outside with Barnaby and Troy to talk privately with them. Like men do. About where he really was. Like men do. Like men do. But then to provide his alibi, he says he was with somebody else and whips out her business card. With the same Foley, the same sound effect as when Denny pulled out his business card. I thought you were gonna say, like men do. Like because, men you know, do. all men have a prostitute's business card in their wallet. Apparently, get the business card. Yeah, well, you know. It'll you get might, you out of trouble. You might forget her number. Exactly. Yeah, because Barbara's not gonna look for it. She doesn't care. Right? Again, <laughs> in the book, it is a clearly different relationship. Yeah. In the book, they go to the strip club, Barnaby and Troy. I would I would have loved for that scene to be included in this episode. Can you imagine the two of them in a nasty old strip club talking to this How old... incredibly uncomfortable they were. This old dancer. <laughs> and in the book, she, I mean, she's pretty crusty. Hot on the Michael Lacey tip, they go back to Holly Cottage and they find Michael Lacey who doesn't want the house to be searched. His studio is very private. It's very private. And Troy, who clueless up until this point goes, looks around and then goes, oh, there's a knife up there. Now, wait a minute, there were flies buzzing there's around. There flies it. buzzing around, so they fly into bloody knife. Which apparently Michael Lacey hadn't noticed. But there's something about his studio that I'm curious about. This scene is in the middle of the day, as all the scenes at Holly Cottage are. He's in his studio, he's been working. There are candles everywhere, like in wine bottles and stuff. And he's in his Dexy Midnight Rudder outfit again. He is. And like, how does that place not burn down? I do not know. Because he immediately takes off. Oh yeah, runs like crazy. <laughs> runs, he, he's, it's a show of horrible runners. Except for Troy, Troy catches him, no problem. Yeah, Tackles, tackles him, him to the ground. They put him in the back of the car. Barnaby gets in the back of the car with him. I think Michael wanted to be caught. I don't think he was trying to get away. He was pretending to try to get away. It's implied later on because he wanted them away from the cottage. And so he does his famous thing here of, I've been framed. He draws a frame 
when his sister goes by the car. You have to know that Mark is making the hand gesture in front of his mic as if that's going to help. He's making the frame shape. So we all know what that frame looks like. Yeah, yeah, with his fingers. Next, the wedding. Or is it? Or is it? (laughs) So we This is the only kind of weird, like... Psychedelic scene I can remember it's, from it's a Midsummer. It's Barnaby's fever dream. Yeah, he's having a dream. But this is how the great detective's mind works, right? He has to go to sleep, and then all the clues start to sift and sort, and he comes up with the solution. So he's in a dream we don't know, okay? But we have a bouquet with the pointers and the orchid in it. Yeah, the popsicle sticks with the ribbons around them. And it's kind of like red flowers that are kind of like spilling out, too. Yep. It looks kind of bloody. Then we have Terry saying, oh, poor Annabella. Yeah, she's whispering to Barnaby from behind him. Joyce has the basket, the giant basket with the mushrooms. (laughs) The priest is reading. God help us if she tries to cook. (laughs) The the priest is reading Tis Pity She's a Whore, which is. The play. The play that Cully's doing. Yeah. Which is the book that was at the old lady's house when she makes the call in the beginning and is coincidentally about an incestuous relationship that ends in murder. With a character named Annabella. With a character named Annabella. Michael Lacey's doing his frame thing. So wait a minute, let's just make sure that people get this. So in the very beginning of the episode, Emily is on the phone, frantic, trying to figure out who to call, and on the table next to her is a paperback book that is Tis Pity She's a Whore. She has the play sitting there, which is why she's thinking about Annabella. But I don't know. She's a school teacher. Yeah, she's very literate, of course. But what is the coinkydink of Cully also being in this play? And she's reading a Jacobean incest tragedy? Apparently, that's what she does for fun. Maybe she heard about the production of the play, so she wanted to read it because she was going to go see it. So, Michael Lacey's doing his frame thing. Yeah, I keep hitting my microphone while I'm doing it. Yeah. And then we have Rainbird Zombies. Yeah. Which are fantastic. Because they're sitting there in the crowd at the wedding, and they... And so her head is not cut off. That would have been awesome if she looked like her head had been cut off. She could have been carrying it under her arm. <laughs> that would have been awesome. And Daddy would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he could carry her head around. Yeah. And she could go, who's a good boy? But they do have like dark cheeks and like sallow eyes. And they're, they're just looking forward. But, you know, they could have done better with that scene. So, <laughs> if they had let me direct that yeah. scene. Totally would have been carrying her head under her arm. So it's a dream. The phone's ringing and Joyce is waking up Tom in bed. Yeah, because it's the call. The call that Phyllis has committed suicide. This is this is the most troubling part of the episode for me. It's really sad and Barnaby legitimately freaks out. Yeah, he we've is, been checking on her once an hour. Well, it wasn't enough. It wasn't. So, so she... And he goes, what a mess. And I simply said, your hair? Because... <laughs> Barnaby's hair is wild. <laughs> He's got bed head. But what did she hang herself with? I think she cuts her wrists. No, because it looks like there's something white tied around her throat. Bed sheet something. Her granny panties? Maybe. Her sneakers. <gasps> Could be. <You> never know. <laughs> the laces from her. It wasn't that giant vest, though, because it was white. It wasn't yes. green. So then Michael Lacey, who's in prison in the county clink, still in his lovely white jumpsuit, yeah. goes, oh, I forgot to tell you my whole alibi. Yeah, you didn't give me a chance, dude. And they were, were like, like you should have told us yesterday. He, say, he says, you should have asked me yesterday. Rewind, they did ask him yeah, yesterday. They did. 
Because he said he was working on paintings he all day. He was so concerned with getting them out of the studio so they didn't see the canvas. I guess. That that's all he had on his mind, was getting so them out of that studio. Then he says the thing that drives me insane about Michael Lacey. He says, he calls Troy Caped Crusader. Yeah. Okay, Troy is not Batman. No. He's Robin at best. At best. At best. Barnaby is Batman. Why does he even say Cape Crusader? And then Troy comes back and goes, better be true. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, I told you. So they go see the doctor's daughter. She confirms the alibi. Yeah. And this is where the Miss Whiplash thing happens. That's right. This is where Dr. Lesseter whips out the business card for his so prostitute. Our, our list of suspects is getting shorter. It's gone from Michael Lacey and Catherine Lacey and a few other people to just Michael Lacey and Catherine Lacey at this point. Yeah, but they both have alibis, right? We think they do. Suddenly, somebody gets a brain fart and says, maybe we should go to Brighton and see this old lady that the original old lady was giving a call to. So they suddenly take a road trip to Brighton. Which, uh, again, Troy, hey, Troy's a bad driver. So they meet up with Mary Sharp and she tells the story about the kids fighting. And one night she couldn't get sleep and she wakes up and she finds incestuous bonking. Wow. Yeah. Well, she says they and there's were, nakedness. She says they were troubled. You know, they were troublesome, and they but they faked these arguments. Like she felt like, like they she were was trying. They were trying to convince her that they didn't get along to cover up the fact that they got along. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, did they get they along. get along. But speaking of which, okay, cowboy and, cowgirl got along, little doggy. At this point. I thought, for the first time, I thought, okay, so they've got this cottage. They've had this cottage since they were kids, right, and moved in with the nanny, became Henry's wards. They've had this cottage that whole time. And for years and years, they've lived there without their nanny, of course, as adults. And yet, they go into the woods to have sex. They're playing the long game, certainly, okay? Because they're driven insane by the incestuous bonking. That is the only explanation I have for the bonking outside and the bonking and the driven insane. The incestuous bonking must drive them insane, must make them go, we must bonk outside on the grass, (laughs) on a rug. We could easily do it hidden in this little cottage surrounded by weeds and where nobody goes but us. Crazy incestuous bonking. And then they have this whole plan to get money from... From Henry. From Henry. So Catherine's going to make Henry fall in love with her, even though he's been her guardian for years since she was a child. five years they waited. They played the long, incestuous bonking game. Well, maybe they were running out of money because Michael's paintings weren't selling. Maybe. Though he's really good. All he did was paint weird paintings of his sister naked. So they take it. She says, it's important that Mary Sharp says, I didn't tell anyone because I love them. And so in her her last act of love, Mary Sharp calls Michael. And warns him that and they warns know. him. She calls Michael. Michael freaks out. But it's the wedding is happening. Well, first it's the of day all, of the wedding. He gets out of his overalls and gets his mom jeans on. <laughs> and his sneakers. And he runs over to Ty House. Why was he not at Ty House already for their wedding? Maybe he didn't want anything to do with the wedding. Remember, Maybe. he said he wasn't going to get her a present. Maybe. So he leaves the police station when he's released. they got to let him go. So he changes out of his white bunny suit. Into and, his mom and jeans. And puts on his mom jeans. But he can run. He's running. 
Not as fast as Phyllis. But he runs all the way from Holly Cottage to the house, into the house, up to see Catherine where she's putting on her wedding dress. This is the first real wedding day. They figured out that he was a beater, and that was why it was weird that he was walking with Belle. Yeah, because his job would have been to be 100 yards ahead of the shooting party with a stick stirring up the quail so they would pheasant, so they would fly out of the trees. So he really shouldn't have been back with the shooting party. Not if he was doing his job. Meanwhile, Phyllis is like the Flash. Yeah, but before they can arrest Michael and Catherine. No, no, they're sheep first. Yeah, well, yeah, because the sheep slow them down. Why are they not taking the A1 or whatever highway? Because they're just in a little village. And they pass a rock that says, Badger's Drift, seven miles. Well, were they in Coston before? And Troy says, shooting, bludgeoning, stabbing, and and poisoning, anything goes for those two. I'm like, yeah, you forgot about the incestuous bomb king. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there is that too. So they, they rush back to Thai House. The wedding is about to start, but Catherine's still upstairs. Michael runs into the house, and then by the time Barnaby and Troy get there, David Whiteley is there to say he doesn't know where she is. They've, and they, maybe they're at Holly Cottage, and Barnaby says, says no, no, it's too I late. Think, I think we're too late. Yeah. And again, a fit of insanity brought on by the bonking. They apparently. go back to the very same They spot. go back to the bonking ground and shoot themselves. Yeah. Okay, I guess. So then, what does Barnaby do? Barnaby doesn't, like, investigate the scene or... No, they're dead now, whatever. Or, or talk to Edward. <laughs> yeah. Nothing like that. Or Henry. He, go, he goes, Henry, he goes and finds the bell ringer lady and takes her to Holly Cottage to look at the horrible painting. Yeah, I don't understand. Like, so, so we know when Michael says, I've been framed, that he's... He's sending Catherine a message to say, you've got to take that canvas, <laughs> that you've got to take the canvas out of the frame because if they see it, they'll know, right? Because they don't want anybody to know. So they find the canvas and it's Catherine Lacey, naked as the day is long. But kind of in a weird, twisty perspective. Yeah. Weirdness. I don't know. Very strange. It's very weird. Um, and then, of Creepiest course... Creepiest painting ever. Yeah. And then, of course, we find out that, you know, Annabella is the character in Cully's play. Because so they go to Cully's play... Yeah, that ties and, everything and up. And they find out that Annabella is the character in the play, not Bella. It was right. just Quinky Dink. Because Cully's on stage playing Annabella, yes. kissing her brother in yes. the play, right? And then Barney has... Barnaby has this creepy smile. Because he's put it all together. He's put it all together. It's the satisfaction of... All the ends being tied up. And then the episode ends. Right. That's it. Credits, we're done. So can we talk about the Lacey's motive? Okay. So talk about Lacey's, sum up Lacey's motive. Okay. So we know that they've been having this forbidden relationship. Incestuous bonking. The, the nanny has gone away. And we assume that they've been living in the cottage for five years, right? At yes. some point, they must have got the idea that Catherine could seduce Henry. Well, no, they had that before because they killed Bella. Well, yeah. So so they've had this plan. Again, long game. You're right. So they've had this plan for a long time. So without knowing that Phyllis was planning on killing her, which would have made their plan even better, right? Without knowing that, they... So uh, Catherine shot Bella in the woods, knowing that in five years she would try to marry him. 
Yes. Right? Five years. That's a long time. Yeah. But that has nothing to do with hiding their relationship. That's just about them getting their hands on some money because Henry has polio. And so he's bound to die at some point. Right? And they, they kill the old lady at the beginning because they're seen bonking in the forest. Because she's seen them. Right? So if she exposes them, Catherine won't marry Henry. Meanwhile, the woman is in Brighton who's like, oh, I love them too much to talk about their bonking. Well, I think they trust her. Right? Because she's why. not said anything for all these years, and she loved them, and they know that, right? I guess. They've already killed Bella. Then they waited some time. Five years. To get Henry hooked up with months. Catherine, yeah. right? Then Emily sees them. They can't have that happen because she might tell somebody, and that would endanger their plan of getting their hands on Henry's money, right? Yes. Then the Rainbirds... Try to blackmail them. Try to blackmail them. But what did the Rainbirds actually see? They saw... They, they, got, they saw them planting, trying to get rid of the blanket. Now, I don't know why the Rainbirds knew that that was the bonking blanket. Or what they thought was going on with the blanket. No. Because what they really saw was somebody at uh, Emily's door... They know that Catherine had her dog and her dog would bark, so it couldn't have been really her. It had to be somebody else. So they've they've got suspicions and they know they're trying to hide evidence, but they didn't know anything definitively. But the Lacey's kill them anyway. But the late yeah, the Lacey's kill them anyway. Well Catherine driven insane by the bonking. (laughs) Incestuous bonking. (laughs) So the whole the whole idea is that they can't have anybody endangering the plan. The big plan, which is them, I guess, living in Thai house together? No. So let's consider this. Say they don't kill the old lady at the beginning. The old lady at the beginning is fraught and upset. Emily, yeah. Now everybody believes her because they all taught, she taught them all in school. Right. Right. But they could easily say, no, she's an old lady. She doesn't know what she's talking about. I was doing this and he was doing this. It wasn't. They didn't have to. The first thought is kill the old lady. Yeah. Well, and what would Mary Sharp have told Emily if she gotten through to her? Emily, Mary would have said, I know it's wrong and what? I guess they shouldn't be doing it, but I guess she still loves. Yeah, but how's Emily going to take that story? She's going to go, oh, well, if you love them and don't think it's a problem that you can face, then I'll just forget about it. I think she would have told Bellringer. I think she would have well, confided. Bellringer would have caused the She problems. would have confided in Bellringer. And I think that if all, if they hadn't killed the Rainbirds and got caught for that, she would have been next. Yeah. They would I have had to kill that. Lucy Bellringer. Well, and Bellringer says she thinks it's Catherine Lacey and then she talks herself out of it. Yeah. Like everybody else in this episode. Yeah. Yeah. That is the killings at Badger's Drift. The beginning of what will become one of the longest running best British cozy murder mystery shows out there absolutely fantastic episode we we picked it apart down to what troy is wearing in the background (laughs) but it is still an absolutely fantastic episode and all these years later was it 32 years is that right it aired in 97 32 years later it is still so watchable so great and around our house, we still say things like, "That's a, you got to write constable and I have to tell the bees. I hope you've enjoyed this. Absolutely. This was a blast for us to do. 
I, I've had so much fun getting ready for this and really enjoyed this. The plan is to do one of these every week and the next week will be Written in Blood, which is the real first episode from the first season and has scumbag scum. Scumbag scum. <laughs> and if, if you've, you've seen, seen it, it, you know what we're talking you about. know exactly. <laughs> and that damn dragon book. Oh. <laughs> if you like this, let us know. Uh, we have a Twitter feed at Midsummer Maniacs. If you if you've ever tried to make ice sombreros and you have a picture, we'd please, love to see them. Ice sombrero <laughs> recipes. Please send us your ice sombrero recipes. And if there's a favorite moment in the Killings at Badger's Drift that we didn't point out, that yes, please let tell us, us know. What Absolutely. was your favorite? And uh, with that, we will see you for Written in Blood in a week's time. Bye, maniacs. Bye, maniacs. who's normally absolutely silent is in the next room going crazy. <laughs>